Now when you open the newspaper and read Treasurer announces record GDP growth or iron ore exports up again this quarter, it all seems like good news. Or is it? And how long can this go on? Is there any limit to growth? And why is it so often seen as the highest goal of a government? Well, here to discuss this, I'm pleased to welcome Dr. Karen Higgs, who is a writer and historian and a university associate at the School of Social Sciences at the University of Tasmania and associate member of the Club of Rome. Karen has been concerned with environment, social justice and limits issues for many decades now. And her book, Collision Course, Endless Growth on a Finite Planet, was published by MIT Press in 2014. And Karen is the author of two chapters in the book of which I am co-editor, Sustainability and the New Economics, published by Springer in 2022. Uh, Hello and uh, welcome, Karen. Hello, Rod. Lovely to be here. Now, given that growth is seen as an end in itself by so many governments, what got you thinking about growth and why is it an issue? Oh, as you noted, I was trained as a historian in the in the first place, and um, so I was a history English kind of that sort of humanities person. And then I stumbled upon the limits to growth in Shaftesbury Avenue, London, one day in 1972 when it was just out, and I started to read it, and I realised that I was living in a you know a dream world in a way, but I was completely unaware of the larger processes, the larger wheels that were turning, and um, that in fact the whole thing our lives were depending on was really problematic. And so from then on, I well I read I read the Blueprint for Survival, which the ecologist editors editors had put out as well, and I started being very interested in well, science and economics and things that I had not really paid much attention to beforehand. So is there such a thing as sustainable development? My feeling about this is that there could be, but it would have to be uh, in the framework of, it would have to be that the human activities do not breach the planetary boundaries, the natural and ecological boundaries, and that the human project takes care of all the people, you know, so that it doesn't, uh, it's not predicated on hunger and poverty for some and um, huge riches for others. So that's, I would think if sustainable development could be framed in those ways, yes, possibly, possibly, but the way it's being done is not probably viable. So tell me about the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals and are they really sustainable? You probably, probably, people probably remember that there were things called Millennium Development Goals in the last, at the end of the last century. These were, I always thought, completely useless because they had no mention of the, of the planetary boundary side of it, if you like. There was no mention of climate, land, water, etc. But, um, these ones, I mean, when you look at them, just glance at them, they look a whole lot better. So they still want to end poverty, hunger, provide health and well-being, education, end discrimination against women. They want to provide water and sanitation, energy, 
Growth and jobs, there's where the problem lies. Um, I'll get back to that, I guess. They want to reduce inequalities and then they come to their four crucial environment-related aspects, which is climate action, um, repairing and looking after the oceans and the land, and sustainable production and consumption. So the headings are terrific apart from growth. So how do you think that uh, growth became central to the thinking of governments and has even influenced the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals? Well, the thing is, for the last 70 years or so, you could say that growth has been the mantra of business, governments, and all the UN organisations, IMF, World Bank, this is the thing that everyone is pursuing. And my problem with the uh, Sustainable Development Goals, I might just call them SDGs, um, is that they are still um, framed within that growth trajectory. They still think that by growing, we can solve all our problems. Would you say that growth is a fundamental part of our problem? There are there are parts of them that are really... I mean, it's really important for us rich world folk. It's important that we understand that uh, we do have to take on the socioeconomic deficits that exist for, I don't know, well over half the world's population. We really do. We've got to address it. I think what happens with the, uh, with the UN SDGs is that they think it can be done by more growth, you know, by extending and expanding our human operation. And they're failing to notice that, well, apart from resources getting depleted and harder to find and and, uh, more expensive to extract, it's also destroying the, uh, the biodiversity, the species we share the planet with. Well, if growth's a fundamental part of the problem, uh, was it ever acknowledged and why why is it ignored now? Look, I suspect so. I think when you read between the lines, you can see that there must have been people there in the drawing up who were, you know, fighting for things that I would consider more appropriate, but that in the end, the framework, I mean, when I wrote my my book, I read all those, um, I, I read the, all the Rio documents right back, the Stockholm documents right through. I think when you go back to Stockholm, which is what, 72 or something, there was more awareness and also the Brundtland report in maybe 87, they were still talking about the ex- the overconsumption of the rich world. They were still talking about the necessity for redistribution, you know, the, you know. But all these things keep getting uh, progressively dropped, and I think probably as neoliberalism took over the discourse of what is true and what is right and what is the best way to do anything. I don't remember the last time I saw the UN Sustainable Development Goals even mentioned in the media or by the government. Are they ignored? Does anybody actually take any notice of them? I don't know. Oh, I had a friend the other day who 
uh, who she'd heard of them because she um, she reads conspiracy sites. Not that she's one of the conspiracy people, but she said the conspiracy people are very much against them too. But she's going to go away and tell me why. But I show, I gave her a copy of my chapter and said, well, I'm against them too, but probably for very different reasons. <laughs> anyway, um, so I don't think most people are aware of them at all, Rod. And I don't know that. I'm a, I mean, I'm a news hound, so I follow you know, the national and international and American and European news all the time, pretty much every day. It's probably bad for my health, but anyway. And I don't hear the SDGs mentioned very often by any of them. So probably, so I would suspect probably not. Now, there's this notion that we can decouple growth from the impacts on the environment and we can grow uh, without over-exploiting resources. Do you think that's actually possible? <laughs> no, no. Look, it is It is very... Um, there are people who still push it, you know, like that, that um, Hatfield Dodds guy was talking about it for Australia at one point, you know, very a very uh, accomplished economist. Anyway, um, the real story is that although, uh, say, the United Nations Environment Program, I'll call them UNIP, they are really completely dedicated to the idea that we must decouple. We must decouple. It's essential if we're going to achieve the SDGs or if we can do anything like what I first talked about, where you you stay within natural boundaries and you look after everyone. Um, But, in fact, when you look into it, they're... There is absolutely no evidence of actual decoupling. Well, maybe you might find an industry here or maybe one country there in a certain few years or you'll find little little flashes of it maybe. But what it really means is that we are going to have decreasing impact with increasing resource extraction and production. And uh, uh, this this is not being achieved. Like I follow the uh, material resource flows um portal people in Austria and they have show they show how you know we were extracting well we were extracting 88 billion tons of stuff a year in 2015 and then we're already up to 91 billion tons four years later in 2019 and they confidently predict it will get to um what's 190 billion tons by 2060. Uh, and this is not even counting the overburden and the stuff that is moved out of the way. This is just what we actually bring out. So you can, you, I can see from this, as do the resource flows people, um, that it is a, 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 a rapidly ascending line. It's an e- exponential growth. So I can't see how you could possibly have decoupling if that's what's happening. We hear a lot about the circular economy, that we can capture all the waste that would otherwise go to landfill and feed them back into the uh, production cycle. Uh, What do you think about that? Right. Yes, well, a bit like... Um, carbon capture and storage. We can keep on burning if we if we've if we've done this other thing that is actually uh, uh, unlikely or possibly impossible to ever do. So I think yes, circular economy. Yes, I wouldn't I wouldn't um, bag it altogether. I think there are many things that can be done, ameliorative things that can be done. It's just that when you look at the figures, it is not having an impact at the moment. 
I think um, I've always uh, I've noted that it's a bottom-up thing. So if production was was framed around making uh, everything recoverable, then you might be able to. But it has been framed around chucking it all together and selling it and throwing it in the in the garbage dump. What do you think we could do to improve the UN Sustainable Development Goals? Well, look, they could be improved. Uh, in a sense, they, I don't think they can be fixed. But I'll just say first that I think that if they were to concentrate um, uh, when they're talking about agriculture, that they could should concentrate on regen- regenerative farming rather than you know expanding you know agricultural trade. And they talk in they talk in um, you know global globalization business speak really so if they were to look at agriculture if they were to support and encourage regenerative agriculture that's a good step it's a very big step um or if they were to encourage low carbon in their urban development infrastructure construction you know um those types of things and if they were to actually explicitly address population which they don't i mean they do they do um they do want women to be educated, which is a step in the right direction, absolutely, but they do not have a family planning manifesto in there. Um, and um, and uh, what was the other thing I was going to say? Um, uh, oh, and they don't, they don't even mention that, the, that, a, that a lot of the problem lies with the Western system, the capitalist system of consumerism, where, you know, stuff is made to be thrown away. The more that it can be thrown away and then someone buys a new one, the better. That's not looked at at all. There is no, and it really needs to frame it as, they need to frame it as not um, not how growth will somehow magically produce results, but as we must stop producing for, you know, the consumer cult and we must start producing for basic human needs which are not being met. So it is a, it's a completely different idea to the one that is well, implicit. Would you say there's an underlying philosophy that has shaped the reason why the UN Sustainable Development Goals are as they are? And the overall framework too is um, leave it to business. They do it the most efficiently. They do everything the most cheaply. Just leave it, hands off, leave it all to them. This is the the pernicious myth that neoliberalism has really infected most people with, not to mention most of our leaders. And so, what we really do need is strong government control and intervention. Not very popular, but <laughs> dictator Karen. <laughs> so, what do we learn from the Club of Rome? So, the Club of Rome was was founded in the late sixties by. Oh, you know, they were all quite well-off white men in Europe, but they were very, very aware. They were very aware that there was this, so I think, um, precipitous torrential progress is how one of them described what he was seeing around him in Italian industry. He was an Italian guy. Um, he's one of the founders, Pecot. And um, so um, they when. Very soon after they were for, they founded the the organisation. They commissioned the MIT team, the Meadows people, to um, to try to assess what would happen if uh, 
if this kind of progress was to continue unimpeded indefinitely, that would it hit a wall? And if so, where, when? So um, the Meadows team did the work and they were based at MIT where um, Jay Forrester was based. Now, Jay Forrester was the person who founded System Dynamics. So he was the first modeler to really look at these complicated nonlinear uh, models with uh, with feedback loops and to try to replicate a real world situation. So they uh, they modified his program a bit and and invented something called World Three, and then they ran three scenarios. Oh, sorry, twelve scenarios through this model. Uh, one, if we continued businesses as, as usual from nineteen seventy two. Uh, or well, no, I suppose they were doing it a bit earlier because they were working up. They published in seventy two. Anyway, from around there, around the around nineteen seventy, um, from business as usual, right through to uh, you know to to a stabilised situation where population was stabilised and what they called throughput was stabilised. Throughput being extraction in waste out. So they were. Um, so they did the full gamut. Could you? Uh, the, they found that if if the thing was stabilised, there could be a future for humanity, you know. But if it was not stabilised, things looked very bleak around the middle of this century, maybe towards the end. But somewhere in that area, um, they thought. So they were really that was a warning, like you know the scientists' warnings. But it, in a way, the limits to growth book. Um, and its offshoots was a warning that perhaps business as usual was not such a good idea. Anyway, they they were not heeded generally by our leaders and our um, businesses. How are we tracking on the limits to growth now against the the Club of Rome or the World Three model? Quite a few scientists have tried to figure that out since the early years of this century. So. Graham Turner, the Australian fellow, did the first lot. Oh no, Hall and Day, the 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 American guys or Canadian perhaps, they did the first lot. Turner did some, and then other people, Ragnar Zotir, the Icelandic researcher, did some, and then recently um, Jürgen Randers, one of the original uh, Meadows team, uh, also did one. The, at every stage, they found that. Look, we were following business as usual, and the Club of Rome's or the MIT um, projections were spot on. Pretty much all very, very close um, to what they what the World Three model had thrown up. And so there's that side of it that it looked like it, it looked pretty viable. It looked like it was accurate right through the 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 first 22 years of this century while people were trying to um, assess it. And then I guess for now, you have to just look around, don't you? And it's very, very clear that certainly as far as climate is concerned, we may be finally reaching limits so that what's going to happen from here on out is going to be much more frequent, much more intense, and um, and much less controllable in the end. Like, you know, um, we can't stop the the West Antarctic ice sheet melting. We can't stop the Greenland ice sheet melting. It seems to be if we were to stop the fossil fuel emissions, 
now or your yesterday, yes, we could perhaps affect the the uh, the fate of of the planet's ice. I mean, ice has been something that has obsessed me for the entire fifty years since I first found that book, and um, and slowly, slowly, it's clear that it's melting away. We are reaching the limits to the kind of economic growth we have been practicing. I also did a talk to the population group, and at the end of that talk, somebody said, "Look, I've I gave them a bit of the rah rah speech, you know, let's not give up, you know, let's keep going." And yes, and someone yes. said, "I've been doing this since the nineteen seventies, and look look at where we are." Yes. And I said, "So, well, what's our alternative? You know, it gives me a reason to get up in the morning." And yeah, I don't know, really, don't know how we're going to get out of this. I really don't. But... I mean. Um, Philip Adams always um, quotes Pablo Casals saying, you know, that the situation is hopeless. We must take the next step. That that puts it really, yeah, that puts it really well. I'll just grab you my book so I can hold it up so you can see it. Okay, yeah, let's have a look. (laughs) So the the Club of Rome and Malthus have both been barraged by a text saying, oh, it hasn't happened yet. You know, we're all doing fine. Look at the standard of living of, of those of us in the wealthier countries and even those in the poorer countries are doing great. Is that a reasonable objection? Look, no, look, it's not a reasonable objection because uh, even though, you know, even though you have, you know, perhaps there's two or three billion of the eight are doing terrifically well, no security problems, we're doing great. But then you have... Um, some in the middle who are trying to struggle up. And then I think there's, look, I look at the UN figures and they're always minimising how how hard it is for the bottom three billion who I don't think they are, they are they don't enjoy security. They don't get three meals a day. They don't, you know, I, I, so I don't actually think that it's all fine unless you happen to be a rich white person or maybe a rich elite person in India or China or something like that. So I don't believe so. I mean, I also think that right from the beginning, from the very first release of the book in 72, you had economists saying, oh, this is rubbish. We're not going to run out of anything, you know. But the Club of Rome people, the Limits to Growth people, they weren't saying we were going to run out. They were looking at they were looking at a trajectory. They were looking at a process and a direction. And I think... Um, it's been amply shown that they were right that this is that that was the direction we've taken for the last fifty years. So I don't think they were wrong about anything. <laughs> so, so you, you mentioned the work of uh, Simon Michaud, and uh, as I recall, when I interviewed Simon a while ago, he's saying that uh, resources are getting much harder to extract, more expensive. And yes. how's that going to affect us? Well, I mean, it's a bit like that thing that, um, that 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 is said that energy is the master resource. You can't extract anything without abundant energy, and so uh, you know. Um, so, I mean, this was the first time I, I actually met Simon. I, he gave an address at a conference in Canberra, and um, for the first time, I became you know vividly aware of what you're saying that you know we've we've got all the easy stuff we've got the easy oil we've got the easy gold we've got the easy copper we've got the easy everything and now we have to dig deeper we have to pulverize more rock 
to um, extract the ore. Um, so everything is more difficult. Extraction, refining, the whole process is taking more time and more energy. And Simon always says, and, and it's not going to get better. We've already taken the, the crown jewel stuff. It's all gone. How do we tackle the problems? Because it's pretty, it's pretty dire from what you're describing. Where do we, where do we go? Look, I prefer the notion of post-growth to degrowth. I think that, I mean, given that we are still, if you look at all the graphs, we are still exponentially increasing everything. So if we could just talk about post-growth, I think degrowth is a bit uh, alienating to some. So I think we've got to talk about post-growth and say we can't go on like this. We have to stabilise, which was what um, Herman Daly always said, and we lost him a couple of weeks ago too, Herman Daly. Anyway, so I think that that is one thing we we can ad- could try to address is to try to, well, we could try to stop the growing machine. But I actually think that, I mean, I haven't used the capitalism, the C word yet, but I actually think that while you have an economy based on the profit motive and the accumulation of more and more wealth, we need to be producing for human need. We do not need to be producing for private profit. And that's really, I think, I don't know how we can make that change. Right, I really don't know how that can come about. You know, I spent my youth marching on the streets. That didn't seem to help. So all I can say is that I think we should keep on pressing for a post-growth world that we should keep on pressing to say, let's just simmer it down. And I even think this about, this is the thing that Simon Michaud says and that I think is very important is we we really, and I've seen it, I've, you know, scientists I follow on Twitter who also stress this thing that we cannot uh, fuel a, I don't know how many terawatts economy it is, but maybe it's an enormous an enormous use of energy per, per 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 day or per second, perhaps. We can't do that with renewable energy. We have to change the amount of energy we need to operate. And to do that, we've got to change from, you know, feeding the consumerist machine to trying to give, trying to produce on behalf of the uh, of human need, basic human need. Like, you know, I mentioned that, that fellow in central Indri- India, Ashok Koshla, who founded this organisation called Development Alternatives. Now, he's, it's not like you can't have business, you can't have private enterprise. He works with the private enterprises all around him. And, but what they do is they in providing jobs for their local people, they are producing stuff that their local people desperately need, whether it's looms or, you know, um, or classes for women to learn to, literacy classes for women. Whatever it is, he is doing it through uh, through business, but business is cooperating with him on a um, looking towards meeting real needs. And that's what I think is the guts of it. We have to meet real needs. And I don't know how we get the capitalists to do that, but there you go. That's a really strong way to finish. Uh, Thank you very much for your time, Karen.